0: All right, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, yeah, Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, let me just put this up a little bit, Um, uh, my wife and I were talking recently and she said, hey, uh, does it feel like Christmas yet? How many of you, it feels like Christmas? a few hands up. This this year is kind of awkward because um, I, I still haven't, like, felt like it's Christmas. And so, you know, I'm getting there, though. Uh, I keep listening to Christmas songs. Um, we sang O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is one of my personal favorites. Um, so I'm getting there, and I'm sure you'll get there as well. There's, you know, about two or three days before Christmas actually happens is when it kind of hits you, and you're like, oh, it's Christmas, so, all right. Uh, whoever's doing the sound again, can you turn it down just a little bit? Uh, I could blow people away, um, when, especially when I get excited. I don't know what's going to happen today, but you know you never know. Spirit moves, however it wishes. All right, Ruth, chapter four. We've been doing a series called "Christmas with Ruth." As many of you know, um, Ruth is the, in the line of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and there's a spiritual DNA. And so we've been looking at themes in the book of Ruth, and we've been applying those to scripture, and this is our last one um, today. So Ruth chapter 4, hear now the word of the living God. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, And in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your word. This is your people. They have come here to hear from you. More precisely, you have brought them here by your hand of providence. May they glean from your word today. May their lives be changed as a result of your spirit working in their hearts to illuminate truth. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said in the beginning, we've been going through the book of Ruth and we've been looking at themes. And week one, we looked at the theme of love on the road. In week two, we looked at the theme of grace in the field. Last week, we looked at the theme of faithfulness on the threshing floor. And today, our last one, we're going to look at Redeemer at the gates. Now, what is the concept of redemption? I think that's important as we start off with. What does redemption mean? Well, one of my favorite definitions of redemption is found in the Erdman's Dictionary, Theological dictionary, and here's what it says if you're interested. Redemption means deliverance from desperate circumstances. I love that. Redemption means deliverance from desperate circumstances. Now, if you're looking for a Bible study, I have one for you. Go through the Bible cover to cover, start at Genesis and go all the way down to Revelation and look at how the Bible talks about your salvation. It's always in desperate terms. You're always in a pit and can't get out yourself. You're always so sick that there's no way you can heal yourself. You're blind and you are in need of someone to help you to see. You're in too much debt to where you cannot uh, work it off for yourself. Over and over in the Bible, when it talks about your salvation, it's always in desperate terms. The most desperate terms... You could imagine all this business about us being able to save ourselves or choose God is absolute nonsense according to the Bible. Now it sounds romantic. The other day somebody sent uh, sent me a video, and in the video this guy was talking about salvation. He said, you know, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock, uh, Revelation 3.20, and if any man hear my voice and and opens the door, you know, I will come in and sop with them and they with me. And that's how our salvation is. You know, Jesus is the perfect gentleman in which he uh, waits for us to choose him. And I said, oh, you know, that's romantic. But the only problem with that is that's not biblical. You know, first of all, Revelation 3.20 is not talking about salvation. It's actually a metaphor for the church. That the church claims to be communing with Jesus Christ, but after all, he's outside of the church and not in the church. So it has nothing to do with salvation. It's talking about a church where Jesus Christ is completely absent in it. But if you look in through the Bible, through and through, our redemption is always cast in the most desperate of circumstances. Now, why does this matter? Because how you view redemption is how you view the Redeemer. If Jesus is an impotent Savior outside uh, knocking on your heart's door, waiting for you to choose him, then he is an impotent Savior. But if he's a mighty conqueror that breaks in the door and binds the strong man and wins you to to himself, that's a powerful Savior. And by the way, that's a Savior worth worshiping. You and I should not be willing to worship an impotent Savior who uh, issues salvation at our whim. That's not what the Bible teaches about redemption. We have a conquering Savior that comes and he secures salvation for his people. That's what the Bible says about redemption. By the way, that's a Savior worth worshiping. So redemption is important. Now Pastor Dennis, why are you talking about redemption? Because that's what this text is about. This text is about people who are in desperate circumstances, roof for instance, she's a Moabitess. She can't care for herself. She's at the whim of whoever would let her glean in the field. No, she needs a redeemer. Or what about Naomi? Again, another widow and a You know, the family is on the verge of annihilation. They need someone to redeem them and give them a name. That's what this passage is about. This passage is about redeemers. Now, There are three redeemers in this passage, and we could learn a little something from each and every one of them. The first redeemer, of course, is the lawful redeemer. The second redeemer is the longing redeemer. And the final redeemer is the long-suffering redeemer. The lawful redeemer, the longing redeemer, and the long-suffering redeemer. And each one we can learn a little something from. So quickly, let's look at it. First of all, the lawful redeemer. He's in verse number one. Boaz comes to the gates. The gates is where all the uh, transactions happened for that time. And he says, hey, friend, he's talking to the lawful redeemer here, turn aside. Now, why do we call him the lawful redeemer? Because according to the law of the Leverite, the Leverite marriage, he's the only one that can actually redeem Ruth. He's the nearest one to uh, her clan that can uh, bring her back, I guess. And give her a name, the Elimelech family, a name. Now, what what is this whole business about the Leverite marriage? Well, I'll explain it real quickly because it's important for understanding it that. Imagine brother A and brother B. Brother A and B are both married. Brother A dies and he doesn't have any children. Then it's the responsibility of brother B to marry brother A's widow and raise up seed for himself. That's the law of the Leverite marriage. Now, some of you are looking at me and saying, Pastor Dennis, I'm really glad we're no longer under that dispensation. And I would say a hearty amen to that. I'm glad my brother has seed for himself. And I don't have to raise up seed on his behalf. Right? But that's how it worked back then. And by the way, that's important because that helps us understand this text. This is what is happening here. Boaz is bringing all of these people together in verse 1. 1 through verse number 4, and he's trying to initiate the law of the Levite marriage. And and he wastes no time because, you know, Boaz is a straight shooter. He immediately convenes a court, and he has all of these people around. And then finally he tells tells the lawful Redeemer, he says, look, you have to redeem uh, Naomi's land. And we see that, first of all, in verse number 4. He says, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, my my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know that there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. So he's telling him, you need to redeem the household of Elimelech. Now, uh, there's a new uh, Old Testament scholar by the name of Daniel uh, Block. He has his finger on the pulse of this text. And here's what Daniel Block says. He says, there's two things going on. First of all, uh, uh, Boaz asks the lawful redeemer if he will redeem the land. And he gives him an economical choice. He says, will you redeem the land? Will you buy this land? And what does the redeemer Redeemer say? He said, absolutely, I will buy the land. I want to. But then Daniel Bloch says he gives him an ethical choice. And that's in verse number five. In verse number five, he says, okay, if you want to buy the land, you also have to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And it's here the lawful redeemer says no. See, when he was given the economical choice, he wanted to do it because it would uh, enrich his own coffers. But when he's given the ethical choice to redeem Ruth and Naomi and the family of Elimelech, he said no. No. Why is that? Well, behavioral economists today would classify him as homo economicus, meaning that he's the kind of person that's only interested in his own name. He's only concerned with what's in his best interest. Well, it's not a good characteristic for a redeemer. It might be for a businessman, but not a redeemer. Redeemers need to be selfless. And there's a powerful point to be made here. The lawful redeemer is acting in his own interest to protect his own name, but not the name of Elimelech, which is desperately needed in this text. Now, there is an irony to be found in this text, and I don't want you to miss it. Isn't it interesting he says in verse number 6 that I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance? Literally it means lest I impair my own name. Now, here's the irony. In his effort to try and protect his own name, look at the text. He has no name. Uh, Look at verse number uh, one, when Boaz says, turn aside friend. Here's the deal. Boaz knows his name. That's an editorial comment. The word friend uh, that's translated there is a Hebrew word uh, that goes a little something like this, poloni almoni. I know it sounds like an Italian name, but it's actually Hebrew. And, and friend here is not the best translation. If uh, I was trying to think to myself, what's a better translation for poloni almoni? Well, um, for those of you that like football, you would know this. What do they call the last person that's drafted in an NFL draft? Who thinks? Who knows that? Yeah, you know what they call him? What do they call him, Albert? Mr. Irrelevant. Mr. Irrelevant. <laughs> Mr. irrelevant. They give him a jersey, and it's printed right in the back of it. Mr. Irrelevant. Well, that's what Poloni Almoni means. It means that he's Mr. Irrelevant. He becomes irrelevant because he doesn't want to raise up seed like he is supposed to. He becomes irrelevant because he didn't have the eyes of faith. I was reading um, the Valley of Vision as a part of my devotional time. For those of you who don't know, it's a collection of Puritan uh, prayers. But I was reading this one prayer, and it took my breath away. Listen to what the author says. I thank thee, Lord, for showing me the vast difference between knowing things by reason and knowing them by the spirit of faith. By reason, I see a thing is so. By faith, I know it as it is. And there's an important difference there. Mr. Irrelevant, Poloni, Amoni, he looked at things with the eyes of reason. Now, look, I'm not pitting reason against faith. I'm not doing that. But you see, reason could only take you so far. The eyes of faith will take you even further and you'll be able to see a lot further. Mr. Relevant, when he saw Ruth, saw a despised Moabite. When he saw Ruth, he just saw another mouth to feed and another person to take care of. But if he had the eyes of faith, he would have seen a woman who is a Proverbs 31 woman, a virtuous woman. In fact, if you picked up uh, Hebrew Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Bible, and you um, looked at the ordering of the Hebrew uh, chap, uh, books of the Bible right after Proverbs 31 comes through. Why is that? Well, because she is the example of the virtuous woman. He didn't have the eyes of faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you have the eyes of faith? You know, it's easy as a Christian for you to think that you have the eyes of faith, but that's not always a guarantee. Uh, Think of the story of godly Samuel. You know, Samuel, God tells him to go and um, um, crown the next king of Israel. And as he goes there, he sees Eliab and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And he pulls out his oil, and he's getting ready uh, to, to pour oil over him because he's big and strong. And Yahweh comes in and says, Ah, why don't you hold on to that? You know? See, don't look at his appearance or his stature. Because man, look it at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks where? On the heart. And so all of the brothers come parading in front of Samuel, and Yahweh keeps telling him, No, no, no. And finally, when all the brothers had gone by, he says, Something's not right. And he looks at Jesse and he says, Do you have another? And Jesse's like, Well, kinda. You know, I have this little odd son. You know, I tell him to go in the sheep, and he's kinda ruddy. Translation, he's like Figpen. You know, he's a little dirty and messy. And he's also an odd little kid. He runs around playing uh, his harp or, or whatever instrument that is. And, you know, he's always writing psalms. And he does trick shots with his sling. You know, I keep thinking one day he has this, like, reckless boldness that one day he'll get eaten by a bear or a lion. And Samuel says, oh, that's interesting. Well, why don't you tell him to come? I think, I think we just found the next king of Israel. Eyes of faith. What about uh, Paul, you know? Paul gets angry at Mark. You know, Mark gets a little whiny and homesick. And so he says, I can't, I can't be bothered with you. Go back to your mama. And he kicks him off the trip and gets in a fight with Barnabas. And they grab Silas and, you know, they go to town. And it's not until a few years later when, uh, When the Holy Spirit comes to him and he says, hey, you remember, you remember that Mark? He's actually very profitable for the ministry. Yeah, eyes of faith. Do you have the eyes of faith? You know, CVPC, we better learn as a people to have the eyes of faith. Otherwise, you better stick "Pilmoni Amoni up in front of our doors. Because we'll be relegated to irrelevance. Irrelevance. Well, that's the lawful redeemer. What about the longing redeemer? Well, the longing redeemer obviously is Boaz. I mean, from chapter 2 onward, he's chomping at the bit. Chomping at the bit. The care and love for Ruth. That's why uh, Naomi said, this man will not rest until the matter is taken care of. Why? Because he's the longing redeemer. He longs to love and care for Ruth. That's why in the beginning of chapter 4, he anxiously uh, puts together this court and he anxiously starts talking to all of the people there and trying to get them, trying to get the matter settled. And right when he asked the lawful Redeemer the question of whether or not he would redeem, I could almost see his heart pounding. Please say no, please say no, please say no. Why? Because he's the longing Redeemer. He's the sacrificial Redeemer. In fact, um, as Ruth said, said, why don't you put your wings over me? That's a powerful imagery. See, um, in ancient Israel, when you were getting married, and a part of the marriage ceremony, one of the ways in which you showed that you loved and cared for your wife was by taking a a shoal or a towel and throwing it over her. And that was a sign of covering. That was a sign that you were promising to love her and provide for her and care for her emotionally, physically, and spiritually. It wasn't a light sign. It was a powerful sign. That's what Ruth desired Boaz to do, and that's what Boaz desired for her, longingly. And the interesting thing is that the child that they would have wouldn't lawfully belong even to him because he was raising up seed for a But, you know, when you love someone, you tend to be a little bit sacrificial with them. And that's how true redeemer's work now what's the lesson that this longing redeemer has for us well um, as much as he was longing as much as he desired there was no way that he can actually make this happen he had no power to at any point all of it could go wrong but yet yahweh sovereignly was working to bring it about all of his anxious toil meant nothing You know, for the past three or so weeks, I've been meditating on Psalm 127, verse 1 through 2. Here it is. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. You know, sometimes there's so many things that we are longing to have and then we get anxious about it and we strive to get it and it sets us in a panic. But I'm thankful that we have another redeemer who settles our hearts and tells us it's okay because I'm sovereignly over it. That's the longing redeemer. Now, what about the long-suffering redeemer? Well, the long-suffering Redeemer, of course, is Yahweh. And he's behind this story all along. And how do you see the long-suffering Redeemer? Well, look at verse number 13 all the way to the passage. Um, There's a mixture of genealogy here. Now, I know, I know, all of you treat the genealogy like the credits at the end of a movie. You know, who cares who the executive producer is? You know, I've drank about a 32-ounce Coke. I need to go to the bathroom. I don't have time to see the credits, but you know what? The credits are important. It's very important. You should pay attention whenever you see the genealogy because you know what they teach us? They show us that Yahweh is faithful to his promises, especially the one he made to Adam and especially the one he made to Abraham to make sure his seed covers the earth. And it's through him all the nations will be blessed. When you read through this genealogy at the end, I hope you see the hand of Yahweh all the way through. Now, there are too many names inside here for me to go to each and every one of them, but I'm going to give you the best one. Look at the name Perez. You know, um, Perez comes to us in Genesis chapter 38. And hey, if you're ever home bored one day, why don't you read Genesis 38? I mean, It reads like a soap opera. And and I promise you, at the end of reading Genesis chapter 38, all of you will be blushing. Um, Except me. I, you know, for different reasons, I'm not going to blush. But anyway. um, But at the end of the book of of Genesis 38, you will be blushing. Why? Because it's scandalous. I mean, think, think about how Perez came into being. First of all, you have Judah, you know, he wants to find uh, a, a pretty girl for his oldest son. And so he finds a cute little Canaanite named Tamar and, and he gets her, right? Not supposed to do that, but anyway, he does that. So, so be it. And then what happens after that? Well, you know, his oldest son is a scoundrel and so Yahweh kills him. And then he gives her um, his other son, Onan. And, you know, Onan, I mean, he, he doesn't want to redeem his brother's uh, wife and so when he makes love to her the Bible says he spilled his seed and you're like whoa what's going on there try to flannel graph that one you know that one's not going to happen you know that's, ju- that's just not going to fly for kids you know but at any rate Yahweh kills him and then Judah's like oh wait a minute I'm not, I'm not going to give her any more of my sons because you know she's a man eater and then, and then the text gets even worse because once she puts, once uh, Judah kind of puts her away, she realizes she's not going to get a seed. And so she dresses up like a prostitute, waits for uh, Judah to come. Because is a bad man. I mean, if you read through the text, I mean, he is a really, really bad man. And so, but Judah comes nonetheless and sleeps with her, right? And so after he sleeps with her, three months later, he finds out that she's pregnant. And when they told him Judah, like, hey, you know, Tamar's pregnant, he says, oh, burn her, right? Burn her. And you're like, what, without a trial? Thankfully, uh, you know, there are some cooler heads that prevail, and they brought her in, and they say, hey, what's going on? And she says, oh, well, the man who these belongs to is the father. And I can imagine Judah's wife on the side of him like, what? That's my husband's, uh, you know, that's my husband's seal, yes, your husband's been a bad boy and he got found out. Well, thankfully, um, he's not all bad because right after that, he looks at them and he says, you know what? She's more righteous than me. She's more righteous than me. And so six months later, they had two sons and, you know, that Is weird, too. Like one son was coming out, the other son pulls him back, and then he comes out. And, you know, it's like this weird O.B. scene, and you're like, what the heck is going on? Is this in God's word? And the answer is yes. That's why I don't understand when people say God's word is boring. Are you kidding me? It's the most exciting thing ever. So anyway, the child is born, and she names him Perez. Now, for most of us sitting here, that doesn't mean much. But it actually means a great deal. Because Perez means breakthrough. Breakthrough. And he was exactly what the doctor ordered. Because from that point on, from Genesis 38 on, and you can read it for yourself, uh, Judah received a breakthrough. He actually becomes the hero of the story and not Joseph. You have to take my word from it or just read it for yourself, but it's true. He goes from being this adulterous, selfish, um, prideful man to a godly man who's willing to give up himself and his children in order to save his brothers. And then it was a breakthrough, of course, for Tamar, because now she gets her seed, not just one, but two. Of course, it proved to be a significant breakthrough for Boaz. Because Boaz is in the line of Perez. And it also proved to be a breakthrough for Ruth because there was a man willing to marry her whose great-grandmother about five times uh, was a Canaanite. And he was willing to love her and care for her. And then, of course, if you know biblical history, it was a breakthrough for us. Because a Redeemer came, and his name is Jesus Christ. And now because of his sacrifice, you and I have the ability to be in his spiritual bloodline. That was a breakthrough for all concerned. And what's the great lesson we learned from that? Well, the great lesson we learned from that is this. Yahweh always finds a way to break through even our messy circumstances. Because it doesn't get any messier than Genesis 38. Amen? That's the way life works. Yahweh always finds a way to break through. Now, what's the big takeaway? Big takeaway is this. The whole purpose of Christmas, the whole purpose of the incarnation is that Yahweh is bringing together a group of people to redeem. That's the whole reason why he came. Matthew 1.21 says it. She shall bear a son And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because that's what redeemers do. They redeem and deliver people from desperate circumstances. And brothers and sisters, we needed to be redeemed. We were poloni almoni. We were irrelevant. But then because of the work of Jesus Christ, we became relevant. We became relevant. And now our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We were once slaves to sin, but now we are all Obeds. I didn't mention that, but that's what Obed means. Obed means servant of the Lord. That's what uh, they named their son. So now all of us have become Obeds, servants of the living God. We were once all confined by sin, but now we are all Perez. The Holy Spirit has broken through and redeemed his people we were all peasants but now we are made sons and daughters of the king that's the magic of christmas if you ask me that's why this story is so powerful and will continue to be powerful because it shows a people who are redeemed let's live like redeemed people father we thank you so much at times your word might appear to us as being curious, unconventional, that you use Canaanites and Moabites to accomplish your holy plans. And there are times we even read your word and it's it's really scandalous. But I'm thankful that you redeem even out of the messiness. And we need to be reminded of that because our lives are often messy. But I'm thankful that even in the midst of the messiness, you clean us up and you present us faultless before your throne. Bless your people now in Jesus name. Amen. And amen.